From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, presbyopic intraocular lenses. When the pupil would get big, most of the light would be outside of this aphrodite diffractive center. First this. Today's podcast is part one of a two-part program. We'll hear part two next time. As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Unlike monofocal intraocular lenses, contact lenses, and even LASIK, non-accommodating presbyopic intraocular lenses correct an optical problem by means that are different from those of our native physiology. Think of it. We evolved over hundreds of millions of years, because the eye is far older than man, to accommodate in order to see up close. It is therefore no surprise that adoption, even evaluation, of multifocal presbyopic intraocular lenses has been difficult. What is needed is a thorough review of the literature. What is needed is Jay Pepos. Jay, welcome to a scene from here. How important is presbyopia to quality of life? Well, it varies. There have been a number of studies done addressing that very question, and most have shown that the impact of presbyopia that is you know, corrected by glasses is similar to um, a systemic disease that's undergone treatment, like hypertension, for example. But there are about 10% of patients that are particularly troubled and, uh, in fact, uh, they said that they were, when they posed the question to them, and said, what percentage of your remaining life expectancy would you be willing to trade to get rid of presbyopia? 10% of patients said that they would be willing to trade 5% of their remaining life expectancy. So for a subset of patients, it, 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 it really does impact them more than others. Let's discuss the accommodating IOLs first. What models are available and how are they designed to work, and how do they actually work? Well, currently, you know, in the United States, uh, we have two accommodating intraocular lenses that have been approved by the FDA and, and, and are available. We have the Crystal Lens 5.0 and, more recently, the Crystal Lens HD by Bausch & Lohm. When we talk about, you know, accommodating lenses, um, I, I think these lenses work by both accommodative and pseudo accommodative mechanisms. And the reason that I say that is, 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 is twofold. One is if the lens were to work simply by axial movement, in other words, the lens moving anteriorly, then you would anticipate a greater response when you're implanting the lens in a hyperope than a myope. In other words, if you're implanting a lens of, of uh, plus 30 power, the same lens movement anteriorly would achieve much more accommodation than uh, if you implanted a plus 10 lens in a myo. 
and we don't see that we don't see those differences in other words um, you know that's not something that's been seen you know that's not been observed so that's the first clue i think that the lens is probably not working that way if you if you think about the way the natural lens works you know the crystalline lens um, the crystalline lens during accommodation thickens. It's about 300 microns thicker, and it moves forward about 100 microns with about, you know, with a substantial um, accommodative effort. In other words, if you're accommodating about five diopters, you can anticipate small movement forward about 100 microns and thickening of the lens and changes of curvature. Now, if you look at the UBM studies of of the accommodating lenses, the single optic ones by Findel and others, we see movement documented ranging from about 0.35 millimeters anterior, and some studies actually showing backward movement, you know, in the opposite direction, certainly wouldn't be helpful in accommodating. So if, if we were, let's say we were, were generous and we say, okay, we're going to allow a, a full millimeter shift of the lens, uh, and you figure, okay, patients' corneal curvature are going to vary, their axial length would vary, their their ELP would vary, but let's say you implanted a 20-diopter lens, a single-optic accommodating lens, that would only produce about between 0.8 and about 1.8 diopters of ad. So, and that's with a shift that's three times greater than any shift that's been documented by UBM. So the lens, I think, doesn't work by purely by axial movement. Jay, what is meant by pseudo-accommodation? Well, what pseudo-accommodation means is it's really, it's, as opposed to accommodation, which is a dioptric change in the power of, of, the, of the lens during celery contraction, you know, pseudo-accommodation really refers to static mechanisms that increase increase depth of field, and, 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 and therefore, you know, improve near vision. And these could be things that affect the instantaneous depth of focus. For example, you know, small pupils increase depth of field. Um, if you have a patient with blepharoptosis or, you know, totic eyelids or squinting, those things increase depth of field. Um, against the rule of stigmatism, you know, a little bit of residual myopia with some against the rule of stigmatism. Um, we've seen some patients who have multifocal corneas. I think all of us who do refractive surgery uh, have noticed sometimes if you have a patient who you treated first for myopia and wound up getting an overcorrection and you came back with a hyperopic correction, some of those patients um, get multifocal corneas and they see remarkably well both near and far. And you know, other aberrations of the eye, spherical aberration, those are the things that could could affect depth of field. So these are all pseudo-accommodating in that they're, they're static mechanisms. But it's all fair game. I mean, and we, should, we should understand that no matter what lens you implant, you do benefit by pseudo-accommodation as well as accommodation. Since the accommodative IOLs move as a result of movement of the capsular bag, what happens to these lenses if the patient requires capsulotomy? Well, it's a good question. I, and I think, again, I think the lenses work, I think these lenses work by increasing depth of field. They do change shape during accommodation. And I think 
that one of the mechanisms is accommodative arching, and that means that uh, there is almost a gradient, a power gradient, towards the center of the lens. And that's a transient gradient that occurs with lens, you know, when the lens is altered in shape during surrey muscle contraction. Whether there's a capsulotomy or not, this vitreous force will still be pushing against the posterior aspect of the lens. And even if someone had a vitrectomy, you would still have uh, aqueous, you would still have fluid, which is incompressible, still behind the lens implant. So I think even though a patient might have a capsulotomy or even so much as a vitrectomy, I think we would still see these type of changes, you know, occur. Now, I think that we're where we really get into issues more in terms of the effect of capsulotomy, you know, might be into in, in, in newer lens designs, you know, maybe dual optic lenses or things like that, where again, uh, now that you have spring-loaded lenses and you're really, you're really depending on the, the contraction of the capsular bag, you know, to change the shape. And I think there you have to be very conservative in making a capsulotomy. Now, as opposed to accommodative intraocular lenses, even within the non-accommodative group, there are differences in design. Tell me, what's the difference between refractive and diffractive designs? Those are the two main classifications of of multifocal lenses, which, you know, by definition, meaning lenses that are going to produce a focal point, but going to produce multiple focal points. They're going to split light to multiple focal points. The refractive lenses work basically by rings. They have concentric rings, and they can be either distance dominant or near dominant, depending on what the, the rings, close, you know, the dead center ring would be. The resume lens, for example, is a distance dominant lens, meaning the center of the lens is uh, is for distance, surrounded by rings two and four, which would be for near. So you have one, three, and five distance, two and four near. The diffractive lenses work in a different way. The restore lens, for example, has 12 apodized steps in the central 3.6 millimeters of the lens. You can think of these as almost like tiny microscopic Fresnel prisms, and they just increase gradually in height. And what they do is they basically divert light to two major focal points, so about 41% 41% of light of the light energy will go to near and 41% to distance. The remaining percentage would be lost to higher diffractive orders. In other words, it's almost like scatter. It wouldn't, wouldn't come to any focal point. So you're not going to get quite the illumination of either near or far as you would with an accommodating lens where 100% of the light energy would be directed to a single focal point that would just shift. Are there clinical differences to the way that the patient's experience these two different sorts of lens designs? Well, I do think that there are, are differences. Um, I mean, for example, um, at night, you know, when the pupil would become large, and, and with, with the refractive lens, you would have all the, all the rings open, and um, you might have some more, maybe a little bit more nighttime uh, photic phenomenon, whereas um, with a combined diffractive refractive lens, for example, the restore lens is really a hybrid lens, when the pupil would get big, you would be seeing most of the light would be outside of this apodized, refract, apodized diffractive um, center. And so the periphery of the lens is basically just like a spheral cylindrical lens. Now, they do have a, a spheric version of it, which has some negative spherical aberration 
to try to offset the positive, the average positive spherical aberration of the cornea. So I think that um, you know the quality of, of the image might be might be um, somewhat better at nighttime. Now, since there are interactions between these lenses, the optics of these lenses, and the pupil, how critical is it that the lens be precisely centered at the end of surgery? Well, I think that centration is important, but I think that what you really want to center the lens is with the line is with the line of sight, you know, which is not usually the center of the pupil, and that's the that's the the difficult part. I mean, finding the line of sight, which is very difficult, sometimes having to use Purkinje images or things that are not going to be easy to you know to figure out intraoperatively. And you can see in, a, in some restore patients, for example, where you do see the rings, the concentric rings, easily postoperatively, that there are some patients where the rings don't appear to be centered in the pupil, but many of those patients have no complaints what, whatsoever. So um, it's really the line of sight, you know, that becomes, I think, the most the most critical. And that's true not only of a multifocal lens, but you know, any aspheric lens, you want to focus, you want to have focused in the line of sight because otherwise spherical aberration, in other words, if you are introducing minus spherical aberration into the eye, whether it be a technus lens, you know, minus 2.7 microns or an IQ lens, if you decenter a lens with either positive or negative spherical aberration, you're going to introduce asymmetrical aberrations into the eye, coma, trefoil, and some secondary astigmatism. So you're going to degrade the image if you are not centered. You mentioned a lens design that's apodized. What does that mean, Jay? Well, as I was saying, what apodization means is it means you have these these concentric rings of increasing length and height. You could almost think of them like, like tiny prisms, tiny Fresnel prisms. And what they do is they are basically splitting the light energy between two focal points. For this initial design, with the initial restore lens, the, the, um, they chose to try to separate the near and far as much as possible. I think they were concerned that if, if they weren't really widely separated, these two energy points, that there can be some confusion. In a sense, you're having both images simultaneously cast on your retina, near and far. But I think that this turned out not to be the case and I and I think that's why you're now seeing the introduction in the near future of the 3.0, the 3.0 restore lens, which will have um, a, a further awake focal point. The restore lens, the initially approved store, restore lens, and the aspheric basically have the equivalent of a four diopter ad. So they're instead of having a, uh, the, the near point be 40 centimeters. It's closer to 32 or 33 centimeters, which is a little bit closer than most people's habitual, you know, reading. And you're not going to have as good computer distance. Uh, but I think they found optically that this turned out not to be the case, that they don't have to maximally separate, separate the near and far. And that's why I think they're going to be able to come out with this other lens that will have um, a point closer to 40 centimeters and Get, re- get around the problem of intermediate um, vision. Since the designs of presbyopia-correcting intraocular lenses differ so greatly, how do we compare them? Well, I mean, I think in terms of functional testing, you know, we that that is a, a an important issue. I think near vision testing is not an easy thing to do. It needs to be standardized. 
Um, people have made great efforts to do that because, you know, for example, if you're testing people's ability to see it near, and you, you, let's say you're going by reading speed, reading speed could be greatly influenced by a number of things. For example, if you make a mistake, then you have to go back and try to correct your mistake. You could really slow down your reading speed. If you're um, a, uh, a PhD, well-educated person, uh, you, a PhD might read at a faster reading speed than a high school graduate just because they understand what they're reading. So, you, 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 so the person's cognitive ability could influence their reading speed. Um, I think what we're going to see in the future is I think we're going to see additional types of testing, for example, um, that, that may obviate some of these problems. See, when you're reading, when, as you scan the page, what you actually do is you can make out three or four letters of, of, a, of a word, and most of the time you can guess the word correctly. And so that might influence your ability to read. We may see tests in the future. There have been some tests, um, some interesting studies done where they created reading cards which are just gibberish. They're just letters that make no sense. And instead of asking the patient to read, they ask the patient to tell them how many times a specific letter appears on the card. And so you can't guess the word that way. And, of course, your cognitive function is completely... Um, eliminated is, is a variable in this kind of testing. So I think that these are the kind of things that we need to start to, to think about as a profession. How can we come up with uniform you know, ways of testing? And also, you know, what should be the lighting conditions for testing? What should be the various focal lengths that we test? Um, and, and come up with some convention, just like um, has been done for refractive surgery and have results presented in that way, in a uniform way, so we really can get a good idea of how these lenses really stack up. Also, obviously, um, questionnaires are important, and these should be validated questionnaires that are statistically validated, you know, as to quality of vision, quality of life, what is the, you know, the positive and negative impact on both. There are some validated tests that, that go into um, issues of night glare, driving at night, and of course, you know, some even driving simulating is, is, is something that could be looked at, driving simulators. You describe a cohort of patients who are able to read despite the implantation of conventional monofocal intraocular lenses, distance monofocal intraocular lenses. How does this work? Yeah, I think that it's, it's very interesting. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you look at the control group uh, for most of these studies, the FDA does require monofocal controls. Uh, you find that you know about three to eight percent of patients can read very well. Sometimes is you know J1 and still have excellent you know distance vision. And you know these patients are, are accomplishing that through the pseudo accommodative you know mechanisms that um, I had described earlier. And and so that has to be you know factored in when we are looking at these kind of studies, that um, the impact of pseudo-accommodation is not, is not trivial. Some of these patients could read standard newspapers, even telephone directories, um, and they definitely have enhanced, enhanced vision. We end part one of our two-part interview with Jay Peppos here. You can listen to part two next time. Jay Peppos is clinical professor of ophthalmology at Washington University in St. Louis and director of the Peppos Vision Institute in Chesterfield, Missouri. 
his paper, Maximizing Satisfaction with Presbyopia Correcting Intraocular Lenses, The Missing Links, appears in the November 2008 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Pepos or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.